thank you for being here this morning. Um, we have, over the last several years, used this particular Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, or what we call Palm Sunday, uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, the Lord's Supper, or what is sometimes called Holy Communion, has been a part of the life and worship of Christians for the last 2,000 years. Uh, it traces uh, its roots to the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified on that Friday. It was late that Thursday night when Jewish religious leaders and soldiers would come with clubs and with swords uh, to arrest Jesus. They would have him bound and they would haul him off uh, to the home of the high priest. There in the middle of the night, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, gathered together and they put Jesus through a trial that was illegal by Jewish law. This trial was not supposed to happen at night. Um, however, the hatred for Jesus was that strong. And so throughout the night, the Sanhedrin met and they questioned Jesus. And after a long trial, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy and sentenced him to death. The next morning, just as the sun began to kiss the sky over the city of Jerusalem, uh, these Jewish leaders had Jesus brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. Uh, while the Jewish leaders were able to condemn Jesus and pronounce his guilt, they were not able to actually carry out his execution. Uh, technically, that power resided only with the Romans. And so they brought Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor of that region, and they said, this man is guilty of violating our laws, and he deserves to die. Pilate questioned Jesus and quickly realized that Jesus had done nothing to deserve death. And so he tried several times to release Jesus, but the Jewish leaders pushed back, and there was much debate back and forth, but they pushed and they pushed, and the mob urged and urged to the point that, that Pilate finally took water, and he dramatically washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood, yet he condemned Jesus to die by crucifixion. Roman soldiers took Jesus just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha in Aramaic means place of the skull. Um, in Latin, skull is calva, so sometimes we call that hill Calvary. They took Jesus to this place called Golgotha or Calvary, and roughly 9 o'clock in the morning, they placed him on a Roman cross, there he hung for six hours, and at three that afternoon, Jesus died. When you back up just five days from that day, it seems impossible that a mob would have screamed for Jesus to have been executed. On that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey and the crowds cheered and they waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus at this point was arguably the most famous figure in all of Israel. For roughly three years, he had traveled from Galilee to various towns into the city of Jerusalem, back to the region of Galilee, and he had taught, he had performed miracles, he had healed people, and whenever Jesus went somewhere, the crowds would come, they would swarm him, they would listen to him teach, they would ask him to heal themselves or to heal a loved one. I mean, Jesus at this point was extremely popular. So it makes sense that when he entered the city of Jerusalem, that the crowd cheered for his arrival. He spent Sunday through Thursday in Jerusalem, in and around the temple area, teaching, performing some miracles, saying and doing some things that really upset the Jewish leaders. And then on that Thursday... Jesus and his disciples, these men that we technically refer to as apostles, Jesus and these 12 individuals gathered together in the upper room of a home in the city of Jerusalem. And there they celebrated the central meal in the central Jewish holiday called Passover. 
This was a holiday that had been celebrated for 1,500 years prior to the birth of Jesus. It remembered the events when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And God raised up a man named Moses and said to Moses, you go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, you go to Pharaoh and you say, it is time to let my people go. Pharaoh scoffed at the idea of giving up free labor. And so God sent plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. It was the final plague that finally convinced the Pharaoh. The last plague was God sending the death angel into Egypt. And the death angel went throughout Egypt, and the firstborn son in every home died, including the firstborn son of the Pharaoh himself. However, the night before, God through Moses instructed the Israelites to take a lamb and to kill the lamb and then to take the blood of the lamb and to paint that blood over the doorpost of their homes. And when the death angel came into Egypt, any home that had the blood of the lamb painted over their doorpost, the death angel would pass over those homes. But any home without the blood painted on the doorpost the son in that home would die. For 1,500 years, this Passover celebration happened. And the central meal that was eaten during this Passover celebration was and is called a Seder meal. Seder uh, comes from the Hebrew word that means order or procedure, meaning when Jewish families would gather together, they would not simply eat and fellowship, but they would follow a prescribed script. They would follow a plan as they ate together. When Jesus gathered with his disciples 2,000 years ago to celebrate the Passover, to eat the Seder meal, it was a very specific meal that they ate, and it was no coincidence that Jesus chose this meal to give us what we now call the Lord's Supper and to reveal how he fit into God's ultimate redemptive plan and how from the very beginning, this had been the plan of God for our salvation. We are going to walk through a very abbreviated version of the Seder meal. It was about a three-hour meal or is about a three-hour meal. We're going to take a high-level view of the Seder meal. And in this time, we will see how many of the statements of Jesus in the gospel fit perfectly into this meal and, help, and how these statements help us understand how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. We'll begin this morning by pointing out the pillows around the table. Uh, when the Jew, these Jewish families would gather for the Seder meal, uh, they would do so reclining. Unlike the popular painting by da Vinci of the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples were not seated at a table. Rather, there was a low table on the floor, pillows. They would prop themselves on uh, the pillow with one elbow. They would have the other arm free to be able to eat. Whenever a family would gather for the Seder meal, they would always leave one space open. That place was for Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who did not die. Rather, he was simply taken to heaven. And so there was this belief that at any moment, Elijah might return and he might choose your family to come and to celebrate the Passover meal with. And so they would always leave a place open for Elijah. So when Jesus and the disciples gathered together, there were 14 places. Jesus, the 12 apostles, and then one place for Elijah. The meal would always begin with the lighting of a candle for a couple of reasons. One, practically, just to give light for the meal. And then secondly, as the candle was lit, there would be a prayer that was offered uh, to say, Lord, please illuminate our hearts and minds uh, to the spiritual truths that you want to reveal to us in this very sacred meal. After the candle was lit, uh, the, typically the father, the master of the house, would pour the first cup of wine. It was called the cup of sanctification. Sanctification is a big church word that simply means set apart. And so this was a reminder that as the people of God, they were set apart 
uh, from the rest of the world. Uh, this was also used in the Jewish marriage custom. When a young man would propose marriage to a young woman, he would set before her a cup of wine that was called the cup of sanctification. If she said yes, she would then take the cup and she would drink from it, and that symbolized that she was then set apart, that she was consecrated for marriage. The Jewish uh, people used that same idea in the Seder meal to remind themselves that they were called by God to be separate from others. Uh, the next thing that would happen would be a ceremonial washing of the hands, again for a couple of reasons. One, to, to clean up before eating this meal, um, but secondly, as a reminder of, of the spiritual nature of this meal and the desire to be spiritually clean or religiously clean um, before partaking in this very holy meal. It was at this point when Jesus gathered with his disciples that something different happened. Jesus took this part of the meal and he put a twist on it. Notice what John says. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He reminded these, these disciples that just as he came to serve, that their calling as his followers was to serve others. And we were reminded today that if you, if you are a follower of Christ, that you have a role, and that is to be a servant to others. Then in a typical family setting, uh, a child would ask four questions at this point in the meal. Uh, the first question was, on all other nights, we eat bread or matzah. On this night, why do we only eat matzah? On all other nights, we eat all kinds of vegetables. On this night, why do we only eat bitter herbs? On all other nights, we do not dip even once. On this night, why do we dip twice? And number four, on all other nights, we eat our meals sitting or reclining. On this night, why do we only eat reclining? So the first question had to do with this flat bread called matzah bread. Uh, and the question was asked, on all the nights we eat both bread and matzah, why on this night do we only eat matzah? And the answer uh, that was given was this. It was as a reminder of what their forefathers faced when they were enslaved in Egypt and then on the run. Uh, they did not have time for their bread to rise, and so it had to bake very quickly in the hot desert sun. Uh, and then they would take the bread and they would, they would move along. Um, the other reason they used this flat matzah bread was uh, as a reminder that just a little bit of yeast is all it takes for bread to rise. And in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, yeast is often associated with sin or paralleled with sin. Just as this small amount of yeast will cause bread to rise, a small amount of sin can wreak havoc on our lives. And so they would eat this bread to remind themselves that they wanted to be free from all sin in their lives. Uh, traditionally, this bread was wrapped in a cloth with three pieces. The Jewish rabbis called this the unity wrap. Um, it was to signify the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The father, again, the master of the house, typically the father, would take this bread and he would take out the middle piece. He would then break the middle piece in half, then take half of it and rewrap it in the cloth. This was then given to a child in the family. The job of the child was to take this broken piece, this broken middle piece, and to hide it somewhere in the household. Then at the end of the meal, the children would play a game where they would go and find this hidden piece of bread, and they would um, have it appear again. Um, on this side of the cross, we understand why this tradition developed. The Jewish rabbis called it a unity wrap. We would call it a trinity wrap. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father would take out the middle piece. He would break 
the middle piece. He would take that half, he would wrap it in cloth, just as the broken body of Jesus was wrapped in linen. It was then hidden, just as the body of Jesus was hidden away in a tomb. And then later, children would go and they would find it, and that piece would be revealed again, just as Jesus was raised from the dead later. In fact, it was at this point in the meal that Jesus stopped and he took that bread and he broke it and he said something that was different. Uh, Here's how Paul recorded those words. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For hundreds of years, Jewish families had celebrated the breaking of this bread and it being wrapped and hidden away and then appearing again, not fully understanding why. And then on that night when Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples, he said, this entire time, this has pointed to me. This is my body broken for you. In future years, When you meet together and you celebrate the Passover and you celebrate the Seder meal together, do this in remembrance of me. We will stop now at this point and like those disciples did, we will take this bread remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. The ushers will come while our praise team sings and they will pass out uh, the bread. If you will just hold it, we will take it uh, together at the appropriate time.
Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the, the broken body of Jesus, your son. Because his body was broken, we get to live. Because he was willing to go to the cross and to have his body broken, we get your grace and your mercy. Father, many of us in here have done this hundreds, even thousands of times before, but every time we are reminded of just how precious salvation is, this gift that is full and free and that we've done nothing on our part to earn, yet because Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross, we get to have forgiveness and eternal life with you. Father, for that, we are eternally grateful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The second question that was asked on that night was, on all other nights, we eat all kinds of vegetables, but on Passover, we only eat bitter herbs. Why is that? The answer that was given was this, as sweet as our lives are today, let us remember how bitter life was for the children of Israel while they were enslaved in Egypt. And so they would take parsley, which is part of the Seder plate, and they would dip this parsley in salt water, and they would remind themselves of the pain and the suffering and the tears that their forefathers faced while they were in Egypt. And then they would take the bread, and they would dip it in a substance called marar, which is much like horseradish. It's very bitter. Um, and just to remind them of the hard times of their forefathers. Then the third question that was asked was, on all other nights, we do not dip our vegetables even once, but on this night, we dip them twice. Why is that? And they would take the bread and they would dip it in the marar, and then they would dip it in a sweet substance called caroset. It's made with chopped apples and honey and wine and nuts. It's very good. It's very sweet. And the answer that was given would be, even in the most bitter of circumstances, we are reminded by our hope in God that life is sweet. Now, it was at this point in the Passover meal that Jesus made a statement that sent shockwaves around the table. Mark records it this way. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me the one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, ultimately, we know that that individual was Judas, who already at this point had it in his heart to betray Jesus. But when I read this passage so many times before, I thought, how in the world did the other disciples not understand that it was Judas? At the end of the meal, Judas leaves, and it says other disciples assumed that he was going to get supplies. They did not know that Judas was the one who would betray Jesus, and yet Jesus said it very clearly, the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me, he is the one who will betray me. Until I came to understand how the Seder meal worked, this did not make sense to me. Because you would have bread and there would be people dipping in the marar and dipping in the caroset and eating both and statements that were being made. And so all these hands were dipping in bowls. And so it made sense that at some point, Jesus dipped his hand into a bowl. And at the same moment, Judas reached his hand into the same bowl. And as their hands brushed together, Jesus looked into the eyes of Judas, and Judas at that moment realized that Jesus understood the intentions of his heart. Although no one else would have noticed, as everyone was dipping and eating these out of these different bowls around the table. The final question that was asked was, on all other nights, we eat either sitting or reclining, but tonight we only eat reclining. Why? Well, the very first Passover, the children of Israel were instructed to eat uh, with the sandals on their feet and their staffs in their hands and their belts tied tightly around their waist, knowing that at any moment they would have to leave, at any moment they would depart and they would uh, uh, exit uh, from slavery in Egypt. But at future Seder meals, they were invited 
to recline and relax because God had rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh. It was at this point in the meal that the Passover story was read, the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, the various plagues that were sent, the story of the death angel passing over the homes of the Israelites, but the firstborn son in every Egyptian home dying, including the son of the Pharaoh. And as the story was read, they would, they would point to the shank bone of the lamb, and they would talk about this Passover lamb that gave his life and whose blood saved their sons from, uh, from death that night. And ultimate, ultimately, we know that as Jesus and his disciples gathered together, that the true Passover lamb was eating at the table with them. The one whose blood would be shed so that you and I would be saved from death, from physical death and from spiritual death. There were four cups of wine that were consumed during the Seder meal. We talked about the first one already, the cup of sanctification. The second cup was called the cup of plagues or sometimes called the cup of deliverance. Um, this cup was consumed as the Passover story uh, was read and was told. The third cup was called the cup of redemption, and it symbolized the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood that was painted on the doorpost of these homes, the blood that redeemed the Israelites from the strike of the death angel. Now, it was this cup, the cup that was taken after the meal, that Jesus identified with. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says this, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so at the next Passover, when Jewish families, Jewish Christian families would gather together, and they would celebrate the Passover, and they would celebrate the Seder meal. They would get to this point in the meal, the cup of redemption, and they would stop at this point, and they would remember that this cup that they had consumed for all of these years, these hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the coming of Jesus, really represented Jesus, who would be the ultimate Passover lamb. Now, before we take this cup together, I want to take just a moment and fast forward with you uh, just a little bit in the story. Uh, at the end of the Passover meal, we know that Jesus and 11 of his disciples, Judas had exited at this point, that Jesus and the 11 left the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they walked across the Kidron Valley. There was a bridge, most uh, it was believed existed at that point. There was a bridge across the Kidron Valley to go to the Mount of Olives, this hillside that's on the west side of Jerusalem. Uh, the Mount of Olives is appropriately named. Uh, there are olive trees all over this mountain. In Jesus' day, there were even more olive trees that were there. There were also, in that day, lots of large caves on that hillside. The text tells us that Jesus and these 11 went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means olive press. Most likely, there was a large cave where an individual operated a business where he sold olive oil. In this cave, it was large enough to hold an olive press, large enough to hold jars of olive oil. And although we do not have evidence in the text, my guess is, is that Jesus and his disciples were spending the night during the Passover celebra celebration in this particular cave. Jerusalem would have swelled in size. There were no hotel rooms. All the guest rooms of, in people's homes would have been filled with relatives. And likely they knew someone who owned this olive press. And that individual had agreed to allow Jesus and his disciples to stay in this cave during the Passover celebration. They arrive at Gethsemane. Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to stay awake and pray. Keep watch and pray. But the disciples assumed they were going to bed. 
They were going to their room. They were going to the place where they were staying. It was late. They had had a big meal. They had consumed four cups of wine. They were tired. They go to this cave. They assume they're going to bed. Jesus says, I want you to stay here. I'm going a little bit further. If you know the rest of the story, Jesus returns and he finds them asleep. And he says, you could not stay up and pray with me. Jesus, knowing the events that he would face in the next hours, asked them to pray and, and they were unable to. They They wanted to pray, but their flesh was weak, and so they fell asleep. Jesus leaves his disciples there in Gethsemane, and it says that he goes a little bit further, a stone's throw away, and he kneels and he begins to pray to the Father. And notice what he prays. According to Matthew, here's what Jesus prayed. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This phrase in this passage, may this cup be taken from me, has been the source of a lot of debate. Some have assumed that that was just an expression that was used in that day. May this burden be taken from me. May these events be taken from me. May this trouble be taken from me. However, on the heels of the Seder meal, there may have been more significance to the words that Jesus used in this prayer to the Father. We talked about there being four cups in the Seder meal. There was a cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of completion. These four cups were based on a passage from Exodus 6 where God spoke to Moses about the upcoming rescue from Egypt. Here is the passage on which these four cups were based. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. The first cup, the cup of sanctification, was based upon the line, I will bring you out from under the yoke. I will separate you from the Egyptians. The second cup, the cup of plagues, was sometimes called the cup of deliverance, and it was based upon the line, I will free you from being slaves. I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup, the cup of redemption, was based upon the line, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the last cup, the cup of praise, or sometimes called the cup of completion, was based upon the line, and I will take you as my own people. Some rabbis in that day argued that based upon this passage, there really should have been a fifth cup based on the line with mighty acts of judgment. They called this cup the cup of wrath, or the cup of judgment. We see this reference in Scripture in a couple of other places. Uh, One is in the book of Jeremiah, where God talks about his wrath on other nations. And here is what God said. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. There is a lot of evidence that this cup of God's wrath was known and was discussed, especially around the time of Passover, especially around Passover events. And so many scholars believe that when Jesus said, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me, that he was saying, Lord, if it is possible... Take this cup of your wrath from me. God, if it is possible, take this cup of your judgment from me. Now, here's what is interesting. Jesus did not deserve that wrath. Jesus had done no wrong. Jesus did not deserve the judgment of God. That was meant for me and you. For our breaking God's holy laws... We deserve that cup of wrath. We deserve that cup of judgment. And yet at the end of his prayer, Jesus said, not my will, 
but yours be done. Meaning, he was willing to drink every drop from that cup of God's wrath, every drop from the cup of God's judgment, so that you and I could drink the third cup, the cup of redemption. Because of his blood on the cross, you and I do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Instead, we get to drink the cup of God's redemption. Jesus said that night that he would take the cup and he said to his disciples, this cup represents a new covenant that is made possible by my blood. You Take this cup and drink it in remembrance of me. We will stop and we will do that now. Again, our ushers will come. Our praise team will lead us in music. If you will hold the cup, we will take it together at the appropriate time.
to tell the story. You've overcome. Jesus took this cup, and it wasn't just any of the cups at the meal. It was specifically the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup represents a new covenant made possible by my blood. You need to understand the backstory of that cup and why Jesus said that. This cup represented the blood of the Passover lamb. And when the Israelites took that blood and they painted it over the doorpost of their homes, the oldest son in those homes was completely saved. He was not injured one bit. Not a hair on his head was injured. He was completely saved from any attack of the death angel. Here's what that means. When Jesus said, this cup represents my blood, when you are in Christ... You are completely forgiven for every sin. Not just the little sins, not just the ones that you did a long time ago, not just the sins that don't make the top 10 list of God. You are completely redeemed for every single sin you have ever committed or ever will commit in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is that powerful. Jesus said this cup, represents a new covenant made possible by my blood. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. And Father, we, we thank you for that blood. We praise you for that blood. That this morning that we get to drink from the cup of redemption, not from the cup of wrath. How we thank you that Jesus was willing to go to the cross, to take on your wrath, to take on your judgment so that we might experience full redemption. Father, again, we've, many of us have, have observed this hundreds, thousands of times before, and yet every time we're reminded of just how precious a gift our salvation is. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, there were four cups that were consumed at the meal. Cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, cup of redemption, And then the final cup was the cup of of completion or the cup of praise. Um, Here's what Jesus said that night. He said, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Meaning Jesus did not drink that final cup with his disciples. I'm sure knowing the events that were about to transpire, what he was facing over the next several hours, Jesus was not in the mood to drink from the cup of praise at the end of that meal. However, he made a promise to his followers. I will drink it with you anew in the new kingdom. There will come a time that I will drink this cup with you. It's not tonight, but there will come a time that I will drink it with you. You and I now, according to Paul, we see um, only in part But one day we will see in full as we see Jesus face to face. We only see a part now. We have a hope now, a living hope, according to Peter, that is based upon the very real event of the resurrection of Christ. But one day we will no longer have that hope because it will be reality. As we stand face to face with Christ and we drink the cup of praise with him, The Gospels tell us at the end of the Seder meal that just as all families did during the Seder meal, that they ended by going out and singing a hymn. Uh, Following the cup of praise, 
Uh, I think it's very appropriate that we sing a hymn praising the one who took God's wrath so that we could uh, drink from the cup of redemption. Stand with us now as we sing.